0: And currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 18, we're in the second half of Genesis this week. We looked at the first half of Genesis last week and this is just a continuation of basically where we left off. In fact, last week we had a little bit of an overlap. We talked about verse 16 just a, just a bit. Uh, But we're going to use verse 16 as our main starting point here in in today's study. The first half of Genesis chapter 18, you remember from last week, is when these three mysterious visitors (laughs) show up outside of Abraham's tent, and they end up having a a snack on their journey, all right? And uh, a big snack, if you remember from our study from last week. And in the process of of having that, there was a disclosure that uh, within a year's time that Sarah would have a son, the son of promise. And sometime in this chapter he figures out that his visitors are divine that they're not human divine visitors in the form of Yod He or the Lord appearing to angels in attendance as well and if if he hasn't figured it out in last week's study he's going to figure it out in this week's study all right and you'll see what i mean as we move on but for the material that we're going to cover it's going to be quite a few verses it's going to be through the end of the chapter so if you don't mind relax take up your bibles read along with me i'm going to read along you don't have to read along out loud because i know we have a lot of different translations out here or just listen if it's too distracting to read in a version that might be different from mine but i'm going to read out loud the verses that we're going to cover today verse 16 then the men rose from there and looked towards sodom and abraham went with them to send them on their way And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous... I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. And he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, Indeed now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. And he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. In the first half of chapter 18, we looked at Abraham, and Abraham's character or the role that he played there was the ho- the role of a host, all right? Here in this chapter, Abraham is playing a, a little bit of a different role. What would you say is a one-word descriptor of the role that he plays in this defense part? defense attorney. A defense attorney. That's a good way to say it, but that's two words. Okay, I'll allow you two words. Sorry. Yeah, he's, kind of, he's doing a defense attorney on defense of the people that live over in Sodom, or at least the righteous that live over in Sodom. Why is he concerned so much about Sodom? His nephew lives over there. What's his nephew's name? Lot. Lot, right. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. We have an introduction over there to Sodom. And you might remember this from the study that we had before. Somebody mind reading verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So there in that chapter, we found an introduction. A little bit of the background in that story, if you remember, it was basically the herds had gotten too big for Abraham and Lot and and their parties to stay together. And so Abraham ended up saying to Lot, his nephew, at that time he was Abram, Abram ended up saying to his nephew, Lot, pick wherever you want. He gave him first choice. He gave his nephew first choice. Pick wherever you want. And Lot goes, hmm. And he picks the best of the land, or at least that's what it looks like. It's beautiful. It's fertile. And he goes, oh, I'll take the, the plane down there. All right? So they're looking down, and he says, that, that place that's well-watered, that's green, looks like the garden of the Lord, I'll take that. And Abraham says, okay, go for it. You take that. I'll stay up here. All right? So they ended up parting ways. And we're given, as the reader, back there in chapter 13, as it comes to an end in verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Already the place has a reputation. All right, And we're going to find out that that reputation is going to be uh, explained more in the next chapter that we're going to look at next week. All right, God willing, of course. Genesis 14. Go to Genesis 14. Sodom is one of three cities mentioned there in chapter 13. There's Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zoar. But there's, it's a five-city coalition, if you will, all right? And we find about the five-city coalition in Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 is basically a coalition of kings that end up coming against the five cities that include Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zoar. And so instead of inflicting somebody with having to read names that you might not recognize, just realize verse 1 has to do with the kings that are coming to fight. And then verses 2 and 3, if somebody wants to take the challenge and try for that, verses 2 and 3 have some names in there. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim. That is the salt sea. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have the five cities specifically mentioned in those two verses. The five cities in the order that they appear in those two verses. In verse two, it's Sodom. Verse two, it's Gomorrah. Verse 2, it's Adma. Verse 2, it's Zeboim. And verse 2, it has Zoar. Those are the five cities there. And then you have them in this general area in verse 3, described as the Valley of Sidim, or the Salt Sea. All right, Salt Sea is a, another word for the Dead Sea, variously known in, through history. Salt Sea, Dead Sea, Saint place. And I'm going to draw you a quick little map here. All right, So let's call this the Mediterranean. All right, Here's the Holy Land over here. All right, There's Jordan River. And here we have the Dead Sea. This is not to scale. All right, <laughs> okay, We're going to draw... Like that, and then I'm going to draw a little dot right here. Okay, so here's just your perspective: Holy Land, Mediterranean Sea. All right, Holy Land, Israel. All right, and then you've got the Dead Sea, and you can see I've kind of made it a, a somewhat partitioned there in the middle because the southern part right here, through history, water, no water, sometimes depending on the time that you're looking at. Okay, so Dead Sea or Salt Sea in this general area. The dot that I made here on the left side, or on the west side, is Hebron or Mamre. Hebron or Mamre from verse 1 of this chapter. So when Abraham is seeing the three visitors, he's under the terebinth trees of Mamre, which later in history becomes known as Hebron. In this verse, in verse 16, where it talks about he's walking, in fact, if you look at verse 16, what does it say there? Chapter 18, verse 16, somebody mind reading that? And the men got up from their meal and started on towards Sodom. Abraham went with them part of the way. Excellent, thank you. Started on towards Sodom. Some of your translations will even have say look towards the direction of Sodom. All right. There's really only one place that you can no do this, one general area that you can look to or that you can see Sodom, because you're talking a distance of about eighteen miles. And so from up here it's in the hill country. And it's a traditional place though, it can't be known for sure. About three miles from Hebron. So there's this possibility that maybe he's walking with his with his party. He's the host, right? And he's got the Lord, and he's got the two angels, and he's walking along with them. And he's having this discussion, and they get within three miles of what we would look at Hebron later on. And they're able to see way down there, all right, 18 miles away, where the drama's going to take place. All right, I don't want to get too much away in case you haven't been there yet. Next chapter's got a lot of drama. All right, So they're looking down 18 miles, and Abraham knows that's where my nephew lives. And he picks up a clue that these guys are going there, and it doesn't sound like they're going there for a festive occasion, right? The mood is a little different than that. Abraham's probably now a little concerned, and he's also realizing that these are not men, all right? So moving on from verse 16, somebody mind reading verse uh, 17? the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Excellent. Thank you, Lovette. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? We don't have an indication as to who he's talking to. All right, It sounds like it was probably just out loud. You know, maybe you have a discussion with somebody. I, I talk with my daughters once in a while in, in kind of this strange way where I would say, hmm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about you, or I'm not sure what I'm going to do about this situation. I don't need to say that out loud, but I'm doing it for their benefit. I'm putting them on notice. Something big's about to happen, right? <laughs> so in this situation, it sounds like the Lord is tipping off Abraham. Something big's about to happen. And in this situation, we have Amos chapter 3, verse 7 has a similar passage or similar material. that says this, Surely Yahweh God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. What are you reading? That's from Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely Yahweh God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. It sounds like God isn't intending to keep all information from us. I mean, granted, there are a lot of things that we don't know and we don't need to know. And God says, I'll let you know if you need to know. But it sounds like there's a lot of times where we are given information about big things coming up. In this context, in this situation, Abraham is being tipped off that something big's coming up and it's in the form of judgment. Has God given us any tip off of any sort of judgment in the future? Yeah, we've got similar information about a pending judgment coming in the future just as Abraham is being given information about a pending judgment in that near future setting. Verse 18, the Lord is still speaking, and it's not even a completed sentence in verse 17. So the sentence in verse 17 started with, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Verse 18, Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Do you recognize any of those phrases from anywhere else that we've been in our study so far? Mike's not in his head. Yep, Esther's not in her head. It's from Genesis chapter 12. Flip over Genesis chapter 12, but keep your place where you're at right here as well. Genesis chapter 12, specifically verses 2 and 3. Anybody see in verse 2 a phrase or something similar to what we're looking at here in chapter 18, verse 18? a great nation. There you go. I will make you a great nation. Right. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. And in verse 18 of chapter 18, surely become a great and mighty nation. Uh-oh, we have an additional word, though. What's the additional word? Mighty. Mighty or powerful. So it seems like, remember we were talking about how God is revealing to Abraham... He reiterates the promises, but in reiterating the promises, he usually adds more information. As time goes on, it's like he's revealing more of his plan to his child. All right? Maybe God does that with us. Maybe God reveals to us a little something, and then as we get to know God and his character, he's fine revealing an additional element to us about his plan. That's kind of cool. I like that. Okay, moving on. Surely become a great and mighty nation. Do you see another phrase at the end of verse 3 that we see in this? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That mirrors what we see in chapter 18, verse 18. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So this speaker is reiterating the original promise that was given to Abram back when he lived in Ur of the Chaldees when he was being called out. And so these words have got to resonate with him and go, oh, I remember who called me out. (laughs) That was the Lord God, the creator of the universe called me to move from here to here. And he used those same phrases, those same words. And now this stranger standing in front of me is using those same words. And he's on his way to Sodom and the mood is kind of tense. Ugh, something bad's about to happen, right? Verse 19, somebody mind reading that? For I have chosen him so that he would direct his children at his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. Well done. So yes, in in verse 19, it's a continuation of the Lord speaking. So the Lord speaking in verses 17, continuing verse 18 into verse 19 here. And verse 19 is providing the reason why he's mentioning, shall I mention this to Abraham or not? Shall I disclose to Abraham or not what's about to happen? And so verse 19, giving the reason says, for I've chosen him. Or some of your translations say, for I have known him. The complete Jewish Bible says, for I have made myself known to him. All right? This known him, for I have known him, and it isn't just a knowledge. All right? This isn't known in the sense that, oh, I I figured out who this guy is. It's not the Lord saying, oh, I've heard about this guy, Abraham. I, I, I know of him. It's not a know of him. It's a know him relationship. It's not a know of him knowledge. All right? So he's saying, I have known him. There's a, it implies that there's a relationship. It's something deeper than just a knowledge. And it implies an alliance or an election. That God, the creator of the universe, is either aligning himself with Abraham and allowing Abraham to be aligned with the Lord, or he's forming some sort of alliance with him. It's not just a head knowledge. It's a relationship thing. Okay, For I have known him, or I have chosen him, as we've heard in the NIV that Gabrielle is reading that he may command his children or direct his children as the NIV or give orders to his children from the complete Jewish Bible. It's to teach your children, all right, for I have known him, and that he's to teach his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteous and justice. If you're wondering what your responsibility is as a parent, this is a good place to look. Include this verse in your passages that you want to include as good verses and passages to encourage you as a parent as to what you should be doing. You should be teaching your children the ways of the Lord. <laughs> All right. That seems to be a nice directive right here that we have right here that's given to Abraham and we can use as a model in our lives as well. To command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. The word for justice there is mishpat. All right. We're going to come back to seeing that word later on in this story. But I wanted you to see it here that it's translated as justice in this passage. Okay. Okay. And that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him is what my translation says. Or in NIV, the one Gabriella says, it says, will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20. Somebody mind reading verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. Their sin is very grave, or NIV has grievous. In this situation here, it's about an outcry. It's about some kind of noise. In, chap- in the first part of the chapter, the some kind of noise that prompted uh, a response from God was Sarah laughing, if you remember that. There was some sort of noise that prompted his discussion over there. And over here, there's some kind of noise in the par- second part of the chapter. It's the noise against Sodom and Gomorrah, an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. This word that's used for outcry here, it's used in other places in the Bible, and it's often a word that's used to describe the oppression that's suffered by the weak, there's an outcry because the weak are suffering, and there's an outcry, all right? Or, or it's the cry of the disenfranchised, all right? It's the cry of rescue, all right? It's asking or calling, hey, you know, rescue me. It could be the cry of an individual who's ravaged, raped, mm-hmm. okay? The outcry that might be heard in that situation. It's a desperate cry for help, and it's a cry for help that obligates anybody that hears to come to the aid of the person who's calling out for help. It can be used in that individual sense, like I mentioned, or it can be used in a city sense, like a whole city crying out when they're attacked or under attack. It's an outcry of a widow or an orphan who's been oppressed. It's the outcry of an oppressed hired servant in Deuteronomy. It's the outcry of Abel's blood that was spilled on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's the outcry of the children of Israel in their bondage in Egypt. So the word is calling out anybody who can hear my voice. Come, rescue, help. I'm desperate. The situation is, is terrible. So the Lord in heaven hears the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Who's crying out? It could be people in the city. It could be the oppressed in the city, the persecuted in the city. It could be the people outside the city, outside in the land in, in general, outside, who are calling against the wickedness that's going on in that city. All right. So there's an outcry that's going on. Having to do with this city that reaches to heaven, and if it's reached to heaven, it seems like surely Abraham probably knew about it as well. He's only 18 miles away. All right. All right, verse 22. Somebody might read verse 22. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And then the next verse. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So it sounds like the conversation so far has been the Lord speaking, and it's been purposely for Abraham to hear. But it also seems to have been the angels were present during the conversation so far, because now they're turning and leaving. All right. So perhaps Abraham is even a little bit more desperate now, because they're probably marching with a purpose. All right. They're probably moving in that direction with a purpose. Right. You could probably get a sense of what's coming. In verse 23, it says, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Would you also destroy the Siddiq with the rasa? And then verse 24, Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? So Abraham is now one-on-one conversation with the Lord. And now he knows that he's going to destroy it. But Abraham has rightfully read between the lines and realized this is in form of judgment. This is the Lord, and he's going down to judge. The way that verse 25 ends, it ends with that same word that Esther helped us with, mishpat. So that's the same word where God was saying what Abraham's purpose was. When God was saying, your purpose is to be just, he's appealing to Abraham to be in a certain way. And here, Abraham is appealing to the Lord to be that same way. When he was initially saying, Abraham, your role is to be just, here, Abraham is saying, Lord, your role is to be just. He's calling upon, he's bargaining with God. He's starting a bargain, a bargaining session with God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. This is verse 25. To slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. He says that twice. New Living Translation has that phrase translated as, surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Abraham has a relationship with the Lord of the universe that he's comfortable enough to bargain with God he's comfortable enough to be bold in what he's saying but he's also humble in doing it and we'll see as the verses go on he describes himself as just this you know i'm just i'm just ash i'm just you know far be it from you he knows god's character enough to bring this up too that god this is not your character this is not who i know you to be that you wouldn't do that surely you wouldn't do such a thing and also he ends with this rhetorical question verse 25 shall not the judge of the earth do right remember the rhetorical question from last week what is a rhetorical question? Don't expect an: answer. Yeah, you don't expect an answer because the answer's already clearly known. The answer is so clearly implied, you don't need an answer, because everybody knows what the answer would be. Shall not the judge of the Earth do right? The answer is clearly, yes. The judge of the Earth is going to do right. God is justice. And we get into this thing where, yes, the New Testament teaches God is love, but we seem to forget that the Old Testament teaches that God is just. And we're all happy with God of love. Oh, God of love, God of love. And that seems to buy us in our minds, you know, the ability to get out of all kinds of mischief for free. Like it's a get-out-of-jail car or something. But no, God is a God of justice, just as much as he's a God of love. A God of judgment, just as much as he's a God of of love. And it depends a lot on the relationship you have with him. If you're in the family, you can expect there's going to be a lot more love. And if you're outside the family, there's going to be a lot more justice. (laughs) But he's got both of those things going on at the same time. Verse 26, somebody might read that. The Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. What seems so amazing about this verse is that Abraham is boldly coming before God and bargaining with God, and God's allowing it. it. He's entertaining it. He's actually open to the idea of, it sounds like, modifying perhaps what his original plan might have been. We don't know what the original plan was. We don't know if he was just going to destroy outright. Or if in his mind, he had a plan that was, you know, I, if I find half the city's righteous, okay, I'll spill the city. He knows what he's going to do. God has the foreknowledge, right? So there's already that factor in. But Abraham doesn't. So Abraham throws it out there. What if there's 50 righteous people? Archaeologically, the evidence suggests that the population in this town, in Sodom, at the time that this occurred, is anywhere between 600 and 1,200 people. All right, so if you split the difference, an average of 900, 900 people. So Abraham's saying, out of that city of however many that live there, maybe 900 people, out of 900 people, would you spare the city for 50? And God says, might be willing to do that. What does the next verse say? Verse 27. And Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. And how about the next one as well? Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have a situation where we have like a merger of God's sovereignty and free choice. right? There's actually a merger here where you end up seeing God in his sovereignty and in his foreknowledge. He knows what he's going to do before he gets there. He absolutely already has a plan in mind. But he's allowing and he's even eliciting Abraham to be a participant in it. And the role that we're seeing him pulling Abraham into mm-hmm. is the role of an intercessor. He's pulling Abraham into the situation. When God is on his way to Sodom with the angels, does he need to stop by a tent 18 miles away? No. No. God doesn't get lost in his directions and end up 18 miles from his destination. God ends up 18 miles from the ultimate destination for a purpose. And the purpose for ending up at Abraham's tent is is to engage with Abraham. And engage with Abraham, he gives him some good news, and to also encourage him and invite him into the role of an intercessor. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does that look like? We know ultimately what that looks like. Jesus Christ comes in as the fulfillment of that promise. But in the meantime, and leading up to that, what does it look like? In this story, the context is... It's as the role of an intercessor. Abraham is interceding on behalf of the people over there in that city, 18 miles away, and he's been invited in because the Lord showed up at his door and ended up having a meal with him and then ends up giving this discussion. Does God need to say, shall I reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do? As if he hasn't made up his mind yet. And so when he says in Abraham's hearing, shall I reveal to Abraham? We all know he's going to we know that he's already planned to reveal to abraham what he's going to do so why would he do that because he has a covenant with him but what does that do for abraham it prepares him to receive whatever message he's about to it discuss. prepares him to receive a message and it invites him to be that intercessor to pray so here we have abraham being invited into the discussion and the pattern ends up going back and forth where abraham said what about this number What does Abraham end up asking of God? He's asking for mercy, right? He's not asking for justice. In fact, he never argues that Sodom is not a a wicked place. Mm -hmm. He never tries that tactic. Mm -hmm. Instead, what he's asking for is mercy. And in fact, he joins good company in asking for mercy. He joins the company of Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Job, Amos, Moses, people that are asking God for mercy. Please, God, be merciful to these people. Here's the interesting thing, too. God is willing to spare this city of how many hundred? 900 maybe, all right? And we get down to a number of, for 10? God is willing to spare the city of 900 for 10 righteous. Think about that verse eight. And God says, I'm willing to do that. We would think, well, you know, if it was half and half, you know, I could go either way. God is saying that the lives of the small remnant of righteous can powerfully affect the destiny of the larger culture of wickedness. God is willing to spare and hold back judgment judgment on wickedness for a small remnant of righteous. Could it be that in our country, there might be something similar going on? <laughs> All right. In this courthouse, you mean? In this court, <laughs> You look around, and you can't help but get a sense that, man, there's some stuff that's broken in this country. <laughs> There's some unrighteousness going on. There's some wickedness going on. And that maybe a small group of righteous might be holding back God's hand of judgment for the time being. Until God says enough is enough. It might be that we are participants in a bigger way than we ever expected. That God might be holding back judgment because we're living the role that's similar to what Abraham lived. That we're living for God. We're living in that general capacity of devoted to him, and that maybe God's judgment is being held back because there are like-minded people living for God in a smaller group. But that's not always the way God deals with things. We find in other places, for example, Jer- Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, gives a similar indication of this. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, one man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, I will pardon her. God said, one person can make a difference in the destiny of of that city. But then, on the other hand, Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, he ends up saying this, the word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when the land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it. I'll cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. All right? So sometimes God says, you know what? Enough is enough. It's time. And other times he says, I'm willing to wait because you stepped in. I'm willing to wait because you interceded. What is interceding? It's praying to God on behalf of others. Are we called to intercede? Abraham was interceding. Are we called to do the same thing? Yes, we are. James chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. That's interceding. We're called to pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So we're to pray for others, to pray for fellow believers, intercede for fellow believers. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, it says, Therefore I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life peaceable life, in all godliness and reverence. We're, who are we supposed to pray for there? Everybody. We're to pray for all men, for kings, for all who... We should be praying for our government leaders. We should be praying. But they don't think like me. We should be praying for them. You think they don't think like you. How about Matthew 5, 40? But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. We're to intercede for our enemies. And not just our enemies in general. Our enemies that are spitefully using us. We're to be interceding for people. Fellow believers. People in authority. All men. Enemies. We're called to be intercessors. Intercessors. Just as Abraham was. was And something changes when you do. God invites us to be participants in his big plan. How weird is that? God doesn't need to use us. It's not like his power is limited and he's like, "I I need a thousand more people to be on my team. God doesn't say things like that. But he invites us to be participants. Not because he's obligated to or not because he needs our assistance. It's because of a love that he extends to us, the choice, the opportunity to be participating in his big plan. That's just amazing that God would do that. There are some days I have a good day and I might be okay and being able to pray for my enemies. And then there are other days I'm like, but not that one. You know, it's the enemy of the day. Not that one. You know, there are days that I could. All right. So our key talking points, we're going to end with this. Number one, God wants you to be stirred up to intercede for others. Number two, God is responsive to prayer. Abraham was interceding on behalf of others. What is intercession is praying to God was praying to God speaking to God uh, It's just speaking to God. All right So we have a, a little model of prayer Abraham praying to God and that God is responsible <laughs> And then finally God calls us the salt of the earth. What is salt? God calls us to be preservative and flavor I've always understood we're called salt and light. I get the light part But what the salt too? the one quality though that I'm trying to emphasize here is that salt of the earth. It's a preservative That in a wicked society, a small group of righteous that are called to be salt and haven't lost their saltiness can be a preservative, holding back the hand of God's judgment until God says enough is enough. Oh, make the most of the time that we've got here, folks. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. God, use us however you want. And we pray that you would help us as we go to not just pray for our own little families, our own little things going on under our own little roofs. Help us to expand that, Lord. Help us to be intercessors. Intercessors that pray for all fellow believers, Lord, looking specifically for areas to pray for. And then help us to grow out of that, Lord. Help us to pray for all mankind. Help us to be praying for our leaders, and not just generally but specifically, Lord. As we read an article in the newspaper, hear an article in the news story on the radio, or as we hear people talking, Lord, help those things to spark in us a desire to pray, to intercede on behalf of those that need need a a touch from you, and then help us to pray for our enemies. Oh, what what a challenge that is, Lord. But, Lord, you've called us to that, and you haven't lowered your standards. You haven't watered it down, but, Lord, you give us the strength, Lord to do what you've called us to do. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.